Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Greenspeak Podcast. I'm Chris Enroth, a horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension based in Macomb, Illinois. And today we are going to be talking about interpreting soil tests. I did post a video onto our horticulture YouTube channel about how to take soil tests, but now I would like to discuss how, when we receive those results, how do we read them and interpret them? Now, I am certainly not the expert in this, and so I had to call upon a colleague of mine, uh, Dwayne Friend, energy and environmental educator. So, Dwayne, welcome to Greenspeak. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Chris. Excellent. And so we're going to be talking soil tests, but uh, the thing we do for all new guests on the show is we like to talk a little bit about uh, you and how you got into a, a career as energy environment educator who, and, and I would say, uh, does that role, do you deal a lot with like natural resources or explain your, your role a little bit with extension? Probably natural resources is the best way to describe it, and I've had several different title names over the years, but uh, since I've been with Extension, which I got on with Extension in the mid-1990s, it's been in the area of natural resources, and I was called a natural resources management educator for years and years, and uh, then got switched over to the new title, which is energy and environmental stewardship. But it's basically dealing with the same thing. Um, I, I work a lot in the area of uh, soils and soil quality. I do some work in the area of water quality. And I also do a little bit in weather and climate issues. And... Um, yeah, as we go through uh, the f the first few minutes here and uh, give you a little bit of my background, uh, you'll you'll understand where that came from. Yeah, I I'm always curious. Like this is the a big question I I am curious about. Um, you know, people's background, and I feel like it stems a lot from childhood experiences that we have as kids, being outside that encourage us to pursue careers in working in the outdoors in your case natural resources in my case uh, more plants horticulture based so can, can you tell me a little bit you know it was there something way back when was it a parent or a teacher uh, experience that that made you want to pursue a career um, working in in, in, the, in the outdoors with natural resources sure uh, well to start off with I grew up on a small farm in Mason County Illinois and um, being outdoors, uh, I got two big interests, and one of them I really didn't realize that I had as much interest in it as I did, and that was on the soils end. Uh, growing up, one of my big areas of interest was the weather, and uh, being outdoors a lot of times in the summer, I would go out and I would see these squall lines come through with the, these massive thunderstorms and, and seeing just those bank of clouds come up and then wash over an area and uh, I was just fascinated by how all of that works so that was that was one of the areas that I really got a big interest in when I was growing up the other one being on the farm was um, uh, being out on a tractor and this time of year is a really good time to talk about this because <laughs> yes, one of the favorite memories I have is being out on a tractor and the smell of that earth when when we were tilling it and i'll be honest even today if i'm driving along at nighttime and there's a tractor out in the field uh, in a nearby field along the road and i can smell that coming through the car i will roll down the window just to get a, a bigger whiff of that it's just uh, it's it's very pleasant smelling to me and i, I still love that 
So you're very in tune with soils. I'm glad we got you on for the topic today. <laughs> so that's well, that's awesome to to hear. So so when you're when you're tilling the soil in the so, so spring, you're prepping uh, the fields for for planting. What other tasks did, did you have any livestock or anything like that on on the farm that you grew up we on? We didn't on this particular farm. We got rid of our livestock when I was very young. So um, we, we didn't deal with that uh, to a great extent. I, I worked for some neighbors that, that had livestock, and of course they would apply some of their uh, manure and bedding in the springtime for, uh, for some of their fields, but uh, that really wasn't a big part of, of my experience growing up. Okay, I see. It, the the farmer next door, when when it was prep time in the spring, it was also manure spreading time. So uh, that's, you know, you mentioned the smell. I'm like, oh, that's that's the smell I remember. <laughs> uh, well, yes, yeah. I do remember distinctly uh, having. To, I was the one that would be cleaning out the uh, the uh, uh, barn, the cow pits, and uh, then going in and uh, helping cleaning out the the chicken coops and those things. So yes, those smells I do remember as well. Yep, but I know exactly what you mean too when you talk about turning over uh, the the deep, dark, rich soil that we have here in Illinois. There is there there is a distinct um, just character to this soil that we have in this part of the world. So I I think some of the best soil in the world uh, here in Illinois, and it's definitely a, a a real treasure and treat. But going back to your interests in in weather, so. So where did you go f- from there? Did you, you pursue uh, that line of, uh, of a career in terms of weather? Oh, actually, that's what I went to, uh, to school to, to be, was a meteorologist. I went to Western Illinois University in Macomb, and uh, as I was a sophomore, they were just beginning a meteorology program. So I got to be one of the first people to go through that particular program. And at the time, my intention was I was going to get out and start working for the National Weather Service. Well, right at the time that I was finishing up also happened to be a time when the federal government was trying to decide if they even wanted the National Weather Service. They were considering privatizing the whole organization. So consequently, they weren't doing a lot of hiring at that time. Frankly, I got got kind of tired of waiting. So I switched gears and uh, took a job as a resource conservationist for a soil and water conservation district. And and that's really where I got my hands dirty, no pun intended, on uh, talking about and learning about soils. Uh, I learned how to uh, develop conservation farm plans for producers, learned how to survey and design control practices for erosion control, took more actually additional coursework in soils, and that was really where my my interest in soils and my knowledge in soil blossomed was was during that work, and it was was very enjoyable. It was another opportunity to be outdoors. So that was that was really what got my my interest revved up in soil, and particularly uh, you were just talking about how great our soils are, which they are, and we talked about that that smell of the tilled soil, and today, even though I still like that, on the other hand, I know that tilling the soil is not the best thing to do, and so, you know, I, a lot of the work that I do today is looking more at, at the ways of trying to help people not till soil in terms of using cover crops and, and those aspects of things. Yeah, there are a lot of efforts going in in soil conservation, and especially when we talk with 
commercial or agronomic crops. Uh, but this is the, the idea of cover cropping or no-till is also catching on quite a bit with home gardeners. And, and it's a big topic uh, throughout, throughout the state right now. Well, in fact, I'm doing a, a small field study down in Calhoun County where uh, I'm going to, we've got some cover crops in a, a small garden area. We're doing some replications, uh, but we're going to try to see how well uh, we can use cover crops in a no-till garden setting for weed control and uh, soil quality. So uh, we just started this last fall. We put in some tillage radishes and some cereal rye, and uh, we've got controls where we don't have anything. We've got some where it's just rye, some where it was just the tillage radish, and then a combination of the, the rye and tillage radish. So hopefully within about a month, we'll be ready to crimp the rye down, and uh, we'll be planting into that uh, in about a month. Things are a little bit behind schedule because of the, the cool spring we've had, but uh, we'll see how all that goes. There's been some research out in the East Coast, out in Maryland, where they've done multiple year studies of doing cover crops in a no-till organic garden setting and been pretty successful with it. So I want to see how well it works here in Illinois. Well, that's really neat. What are you planting into those cover crops? Right now, we want to try to do something where we can have a pretty good consistency in terms of yield so we're thinking about uh, potatoes mm -hmm. and the reason for that is uh, in this area of Calhoun County that we're doing there, there's a lot of critters around if we tried to do field corn or something like that they would probably have some damage uh, not only from insects but from raccoons and deer and those kind of things so a lot of the above ground stuff we probably wouldn't have a lot we would probably have a lot of variation in in terms of just outside variables so want to try to put in something that maybe we'll have a little bit more control over and in, in getting a good yield result that sounds like a pretty neat project we'd like to maybe check in with you on that uh, in the in the coming year and see how how the different cover crops performed and and see um, you know what kind sure. of potatoes you pulled out of the ground there that, that would be really neat to to find out more about so so very, very cool. And I, I know here in Macomb, uh, they've worked with some uh, professors at WIU, I think Dr. Joel Groover, in some of their street tree plantings. Uh, it was really foul soil, really compacted, urban disturbed soil for some of these uh, right-of-way trees. And so they planted tillage radish in the tree pits before planting the trees. And so far, the trees are, are doing spectacular in these areas. So it's, that's a fascinating topic. So I think we have we have a couple more shows we could do with you, Dwayne, here. Okay. <laughs> you come on back. <laughs> um, but I, I think probably in, in the vein of, of uh, especially this time of year, lots of, of people from homeowners to fruit and vegetable growers, corn and soybean growers, a lot of us are doing soil testing. And we're getting these test results back to us. And so I wanted to spend the rest of the show talking about how do we interpret these soil tests. And I did send you, Dwayne, a, a, a copy of a soil test that uh, I have in, in my possession. It's the results uh, here. And so if folks do want to see kind of what we're referring to, I will leave a link in the show notes uh, of this podcast uh, for you to download and, and view the actual results that, that we are seeing. Um, but it, it the results on this uh, on these test results, it's pretty much what you would get from uh, in any variety of soil labs uh, available around the state of Illinois. So, so Dwayne, if you're ready to, to dive into the soil test results, um, could you just give me 
you know, at first glance, uh, we're looking at things like water pH, buffer pH. Uh, when it comes to soil pH, what's what's the difference between these two? What what is what is the what is the numbers we need to be looking at here? Well, for the uh, the the pH, and one of the the first things I wanted to say is when uh, someone does a soil test and they get the re get the results back, uh, compared to what they would have gotten back, say 20, 25 years ago. Uh, it's much easier to uh, determine what you need to do because almost all soil labs today will give you recommendations based on university guidelines. And so it's one of those situations where 20 or 30 years ago, all you would have gotten were the results. It would have been up to the individual to, to try to determine what oh. that result meant. And a lot of times they had to bring it into an extension office or someplace like that to get further recommendations. Today, that doesn't have to be done as much, which you know helps us out a little bit in terms of not having tons of people coming in all at once for for those recommendations. It's something that's sent along with that test, and uh, you pretty well are told what type of material, if any, you need to apply based on those soil test results. And now, as far as the pH is concerned. Um, most garden plants, most landscape plants like to have a uh, neutral to very slightly acidic soil uh, pH. So somewhere in the range of 6.3 to 7 uh, on that pH range. And to be honest, in most cases, most garden soils are going to be pretty close to being in that range normally. We, we don't see in a lot of cases big extremes one way or the other, uh, at least in garden soils. Uh, so that's one of the things where typically you don't have to worry a whole lot about. And, and on this particular test uh, that I'm looking at, it has results of 6.4. So in most cases, that's going to be very good in terms of garden plants. And when we talk to our master gardeners and when uh, folks go through that master gardener class, they get a listing of for particular plants what the pH range is for that particular plant. So certain things like azaleas, rhododendrons, those kind of things may like a slightly more acidic soil than that. Uh, but for most of them, that, that range of 6.3 to 7 is going to work out great. Um, and also to describe what, what we're looking at, this is a sample result taken in a, a lawn area. And, and one of the things I've noticed is, you know, we always talk to in terms of extension educators talking to audiences about N, P, and K, that being nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Now, what, I guess the first thing I'm seeing is I'm not seeing any nitrogen here. So why, why am I not seeing nitrogen on the soil test? Well, you could get a soils test in nitrogen if you wanted, but it really wouldn't mean that much because the problem with nitrogen is it is very mobile in the soil. Now, like most nutrients and most things in nature, nitrogen goes through a cycling process. But with nitrogen, it is very water-soluble. Uh, so if you got a soils test, you, may, you would get a nitrogen amount. But by the time you got the test result back, that nitrogen amount could very easily change. The other thing is, uh, as we go through the spring, the, the form of that nitrogen can change as well, uh, which Typically, it, it moves into being a more mobile form of nitrogen, and so uh, that's why there's not a, a, a definitive nitrogen test out there. There are, are a lot of university folks that are still working on that, 
Um, and a few years ago, they, they uh, thought they had something that was going to work very well. There's still a little bit of inconsistency in that. So maybe in time, there'll be a, a better type of test to do for that right now. But again, it's not something that, that really works very well for, for soil testing. Yeah. Okay. That and that makes a lot more sense. And and that's really another good reason why Extension recommends that you utilize uh, labs, uh, certified labs. And and every office, Extension office has a list of those. You can find that list online, even if you Google it. And so we do recommend using that. You know, the home test kits that you purchase at a garden center. You know, those do give you a little bit of information, but. You know, I tell folks if there's a test kit for nitrogen in the soil, I'd be a little little suspect of, of the results of that. And it's always preferable that you uh, submit your samples to a, a certified lab. And that's the only way you're really going to know for sure what exactly that soil has. And that's, again, one of the things that we talk about with our master gardener groups, that if someone comes to them and is talking about soil fertility, the first question they need to ask that person is if they've had a soils test, because that those test strips, uh, yeah, you might get a very general idea, but it's not going to give you, obviously, any recommendations on if there is something that needs to be applied, how much of it to apply, or anything like that. So, and you look at the cost of soil tests, it's pretty cheap way to find out exactly what your soil needs, if anything. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So, as we go on to the, the phosphorus, potassium, on this particular result, we have phosphorus off the chart. I mean, the bar goes pretty much to the very top of the chart and it lists it as excessive and even potassium is listed as high. Is that something that, that you commonly see with soils here in Illinois or is this we've been putting too much fertilizer on? What's What's the story with that? If either one of those is high, it's typically because there has been a very heavy fertilization going on. Normal soils would not have that, that really high P or K uh, reading in there and you know the thing with phosphorus and it's talking about this in this particular uh, lab analysis is that excessive phosphorus can actually end up uh, leading to a zinc deficiency which is one of those micronutrients we really don't talk a whole lot about in terms of soil test but if you ended up having um, you know, the plants not doing well that might be a reason why with very high potassium, it could end up being a magnesium deficiency, uh, especially for uh, grasses. So having those way out of whack is, is not the best thing either. Now, the thing with phosphorus and potassium is those are not nearly as mobile as nitrogen. And if you were going to try to lower those values, I guess one recommendation would be to try to use uh, a cover crop or something like that that may help pull some of that excess nutrient out of out of the soil and um, you know it wouldn't be something that would be done in, probably in one season or one fall but um, again if you can get it down a little bit uh, that would probably be helpful yeah because especially with this being a lawn I've seen um, problems where lawns have been over fertilized especially with phosphorus and the issue with zinc and, and other metals the plant the the turf grass plant itself the phosphorus uh, pretty much blocks that plant from taking up any type of those micronutrient, uh, the metals, uh, the zinc uh, and, and coppers and things like that. And the, that is what grasses use to turn that bright green. So um, a lot of times 
lawns that have excess phosphorus actually start to yellow or, or discolor. Yeah, and the other problem is uh, when people go out and they get a, a general purpose lawn fertilizer, it usually has quite a bit of uh, phosphorus and potassium in it, way more than you need. And if those lawns are anywhere near a water body, some of that stuff can get in that, that water, and then they're concerned about all the algae growth in the, in the water uh, and all the, the other excessive aquatic plants, pond plants that are in there. Big reason for that is over-fertilization of the lawns. And, and other um, elements that are listed on here, we have calcium and magnesium, but it also talks about organic matter. Um, so it looks like organic matter is in, in optimum range. Uh, is that that three? Is that a three percent organic matter in the soil? It looks like. Correct. Yeah. Okay, and that's ideal for lawns. Uh, but what about things like vegetable gardens or or even maybe agronomic crops? Do you want it to be higher or lower? Well, if if it could be a little bit higher, that would be great, but three is still fantastic. Uh, even soils that, uh, you know, where I grew up uh, in Mason County, it was on sand and the organic matter was down around 1%, and we could still grow garden crops. They weren't nearly as good as uh, what my uncle had in Morton, which had probably 4 to 5% organic matter in his garden soil, but uh, you can still grow things. Now, the, the situation with organic matter is anytime that that ground is tilled and research has shown this throughout the world you add, you add oxygen into that soil the microbes need oxygen to decompose organic matter so what happens over time the more tillage that is done organic matter levels go down and even though you may be adding some of that year-end residue back into the ground additional research shows that most of that stuff because again when you're tilling you're adding oxygen that organic matter that you add gets decomposed very quickly, goes back up into the atmosphere. And so over time, we're seeing a general decline in organic matter contents. Now we're not to the point where we're really lowering our productivity levels dramatically, but if this continues, and especially if there's excessive erosion and we're taking away topsoil that contains all that organic matter, uh, there will come a time when uh, we may end up having a, a lowered productivity in our soil simply because we don't have that organic matter there. So just a, another good reason for anyone who works the soil from gardener to farmer and everyone in between to, uh, you know, look toward adopting a, a maybe, maybe not no-till, but reduced tillage if at all possible. Yeah, and I'm not advocating that everybody goes out and, and does no-till. Uh, right this second, but uh, hopefully over time and, and really hope that uh, further research helps people find ways to do that so that maybe in 20 years, um, you know, I, I may not be able to have that really good uh, tilled earth smell uh, anymore, <laughs> but when I look at those uh, soils and I see that good dark uh, high organic matter content to it, a good crumbly structure to it, uh, that's still going to make me feel really good too. And so, Dwayne, what else, when, when you may be looking at this soil test, or if uh, someone comes into your office and they have uh, a, a soil test result, what are some other things, key items that maybe we haven't covered that, that you want to make sure that they see and point that out to them or, or practices for, that they can take back to their home landscape after they get their soil test done? 
one of the other basic things that a lot of soil tests have, and it's kind of related to organic matter, but it's something called the cation exchange capacity, uh, and it'll say CEC on the uh, on the test. What that is is an indication of how well that soil can hold nutrients in place. In other words, if you added a fertilizer to a soil that has a high cation exchange capacity, it's going to hold that fertilizer in place and not let it be washed away or leach below the root zone. Uh, and then the question becomes, well, what is a good CEC number? In most cases, in most good productive Illinois soils, if you have a CEC value somewhere around 15, that is really good. And again, to give you an example of something maybe not as good is in our sandy soils in Mason County, that CEC value could, can be down around three or four, which mm -hmm. tells you that that soil uh, just does not do a good job of holding nutrients. Wow, yeah, that's, uh, and, and then you have to irrigate quite a bit, and then the irrigation also leaches a lot of those nutrients yep. out. So that, yep. yeah, that's a double-edged sword there, definitely. Um, the other thing that uh, this test that we're looking at doesn't sh show anything um, are soil contaminants. Uh, this has kind of been a big, becoming a bigger deal, especially in, uh, we say urban areas, but you know, when, we, when, when I'm kind of referring to urban areas, I'm talking about really any place that has had a built home uh, or filling station or anything like that before you know 1972 and and so we have issues with lead and arsenic so you know should we be testing for soil contaminants i would say that if a person is concerned they can do that the the one thing that i will tell folks is that if they do that um, to get tests that will give you that kind of information it's going to be much much more expensive to do so compared to a regular soils test and uh, you would have to contact that particular soils lab that you want to deal with, tell them what you're uh, interested in and find out if they are capable of doing those particular types of tests and find out the specific costs on it. Especially if you're going to be growing any type of root plants, uh, that might be an area where you might be more concerned, particularly about certain types of, of contaminants that may be in the soil. So it's, it's one of the things about nature is it does a very good job of cleansing itself, but it's not something that happens overnight. So if there is something that has been in that site previously uh, and there is the potential for contaminants, I certainly wouldn't say to just disregard that. Uh, so it, it's really up to an individual decision on whether they want to pay the extra price to do that. Uh, another situation, uh, uh, a way to get around that is maybe to bring in soil and do raised bed gardening or, or something like that that would keep those plants directly out of that that potentially contaminated soil yes a lot of gardeners uh, especially in like a downtown area they that's often where they have to turn or are using container gardening or something uh where you're just you're just avoiding that soil altogether yeah so uh Dwayne, anything any other um uh, observations, anything like that on this soil test, any other soil test results, uh, recommendations you could give to our listeners? Well, the only other thing I would say, particularly in, in garden settings and, uh, and lawn settings, um, and, and we're all guilty of this, including myself, but uh, I guess the question becomes a lot of people will put fertilizer on no matter what, even uh, with or without a soils test. And it really comes down to a matter of can you get a crop without adding in any additional fertilizer. Our soils, for the most part in Illinois, are very productive to begin with. You know, if you can get by without 
adding any additional fertilizer, then you don't have the problem of those nutrients running off, getting into water supplies. You know, while everybody likes to have that lush green lawn, uh, if you don't fertilize heavily, then you're not going to have to mow it as much either. Um, so, you know, that's just, again, it's a personal consideration. Uh, it's just something that, that folks, I think, need to consider. And um, so I, I want to thank you again, Dwayne, for being on the show today. So, so Dwayne Friend, uh, you are located in um, Jacksonville, is Jacksonville. that correct? What counties correct. do you serve down there? Uh, I serve Cass, Morgan, Scott, Green, and Calhoun. Excellent. And if anybody has any questions, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, my email address is friend, F-R-I-E-N-D, at illinois.edu. Or you can give me a call at 217-243-7424. Well, thank you again, Dwayne. I really appreciate it. We're going to have you back on the show again later on to talk more about cover crops and then the results of uh, your your experiment gardens uh, down in uh, Calhoun County. So, uh, again, thank you very much. And, everybody, thank you very much for listening.